You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Again, I just want to say thank you to our choir for their beautiful music. Every Sunday, we're absolutely blessed, uh, and uh, today is no exception. Uh, Thank you for that musical ministry that you bring. Just so you know, I'm not the only one that feels that way. Thank you. Um, If you're visiting with us, we are moving through a series uh, called Many Rooms, in which uh, we're looking and listening carefully uh, to Jesus in the upper room discourse. Jesus is telling his disciples that he's leaving. This is a moment of crisis for them. It's a moment of opportunity for him as he gives uh, six instructions for core discipleship, what they need to know about how to be in a relationship with him even after he's physically gone, but spiritually uh, present. And uh, we began by looking at belief. This is the first invitation to experience God. Belief is trusting in relation and as a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ. Last week, uh, Pastor Rene preached a beautiful sermon on love. Love is the space in which uh, we experience that trusting relationship. And this morning we come to the invitation of growth. How do we grow in that space of God's love? Well, uh, if you brought a Bible, I would invite you to open up to John chapter 15. If you didn't, there's a black book in the pew rack in front of you, and you can open up to page 878, and you'll find John 15. And uh, we notice here at the end of chapter 14, kind of an interesting a little um, editorial remark. Uh, Jesus says, rise, let us be on our way. And uh, a little debate about what's going on there, because the conversation in the upper room discourse continues. It's very possible, though, that Jesus invites his disciples to get up and leave the upper room and to begin to make uh, their path across Jerusalem to the edge of the temple. And then, as you know, there's a a steep incline, the Valley of Kidron um, and across to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is across from that valley. And as they would do that, they would have undoubtedly come to to the sort of precipice and looked down and seen uh, myriad vineyards. And then as they walk through it, uh, there was uh, an opportunity to walk right through vineyards. And so as Jesus continues his conversation uh, there in the very geography of, of where they journey is a um, an image, a metaphor for growth that Jesus latches onto, And it's an organic image. Uh, let's read this text, uh, which is the first five verses of chapter 15. Would you stand with me and uh, read aloud God's word as the people of God? John 15, verses 1 through 5. And when uh, we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Let's listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear its fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated.
Lord Jesus, you told us in the gospel that the seed of the kingdom is the word of God. We pray through our hearing today that you would plant that seed deep in our souls, that it might bring forth the fruit of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are at least two ways to think about growth. I say that Jesus gives us uh, an organic model, but it doesn't have to be. There could have been a mechanical model for growth, that Jesus could have gone that direction, even staying within the context of viticulture, uh, because part of the process of making wine involves a wine press, which is a kind of a rudimentary machine, two very uh, large uh, stone pits, one above the other, and uh, the, the fluid from the grapes would be crushed and uh, seep down and this, through the sediment and produce uh, what becomes wine. And so uh, Jesus could have talked about the process of growth and development and productivity in our lives in terms of a mechanical process, uh, a machine. But he doesn't. He chooses an organic one. And these two things are very uh, different. Let me give you an example of a mechanical process. By by the way, mechanical processes are very helpful in in our lives. And if you're a a manager or teacher or student, this is one mechanical process that I have found helpful. You might want to write these four stages down. In fact, I'm going to use them as the outline uh, later on in the sermon. Uh, But it's a it's a a simple process that moves someone from incompetence to competence. And uh, there are four stages. And the first stage is called unconscious incompetence. Okay, that's where we think we know how to do something, uh, but we really have no clue that we don't know how to do it. We're we're, we're incompetent. We're unconscious of that fact. Okay, that's where we begin most often. And the first stage of progress in our lives is when we become conscious that we're incompetent. So that's the next phase. It's conscious incompetence. That's where I wake up and I realize, you know what? I am absolutely no good at this. Okay, and I'm aware of that. And that's what gives me motivation now to learn. And so I move to the third stage, which is conscious competence. At this stage, I've been given a set of instructions or a model, you know, and I try very hard consciously to apply those instructions to whatever the function is that I'm trying to. And so I'm consciously competent. As long as I'm thinking about it and focusing on it, I can do it. But the fourth and the final phase and the goal of the model is unconscious competence. I don't even think about it anymore. I just do it. This is really useful and it helps you when you're applying, uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, gain or acquire a new skill to know know, where you are on that spectrum or someone you manage, where they might be in this as well. I mean, think about golf. Okay, Uh, you want to acquire a better golf swing. Well, the first phase is unconscious incompetence. You know, that's where I used to be with, with golf. I, I thought I knew how to play and I could get up there and I thought the problem was with the clubs or choosing the right club or the, the grass or something, you know, and I just thought I, I could really play golf and that's what I was doing until I went out and played with a, a real golfer and I realized I don't know how to play this thing at all. I thought it was about hunting for balls in the woods and it's actually about a hole somewhere up there with a flag. So I immediately I became consciously incompetent. Oh, I've got to do something about it. So, you know, if you're playing golf with me, I'm usually going to try to bum some advice off of you. And I'm going to ask you, what's going on here? This thing I'm trying to call swing. So you'd come around. You say, first of all, you know, you got your grip wrong. You'd adjust my hands on the club. And then you might even lean around behind me and and help me feel for the first time what an actual golf swing, you know, feels like. And then then to become consciously competent, what I'm going to try to do is imitate. Uh, what you've just shown me. 
and think very hard about it. And, and you know, and I'm going to line up on the ball. It's going to take me a good 30 uh, to 45 seconds just to remember everything. And then I'm going to swing. But, of course, the goal is not to have to think that way about your golf swing. It's just to be able to do it. And, and you know, through routine and practice, those instructions become ingrained in the muscle memory and it becomes unconscious to be competent at that level. So these are the four uh, stages of a uh, mechanical model of growth. And, and, and it's useful. Helps you acquire a skill. Uh, but but we have to ask ourselves, is that really what it takes to grow into the kind of people that we want to be. You, you know, in my, my fundamental problem in my marriage, is it, is it a skill problem or a competence problem? You, you know, my desire to be a better artist, uh, my desire to be a, a, a better neighbor or friend to somebody. You, you know, you could, you could teach somebody sort of the rules of fair fighting and give them more competence, but is that the core issue? I suggest to you that Jesus' organic model is what is needed. The difference between a a mechanical process and an organic process has to do with the outcome, but it also has to do with the way they function. Mechanical is about functionality. Uh, Organic is about life. See, that's that's the core thing for an organic process. It's about life. I have a friend who talks about the difference between a toaster and a cat. You know, they both kind of get something done, but the, the, uh, the toaster you can take apart and put it back together. You know, you don't, that doesn't work very well with a cat, right? Because you lose the essential component of a cat, which is life. That's what makes it grow. That's what gives it its function. And, and uh, Jesus is saying our own growth is something more like a cat uh, than a toaster. What you need is a source of life. And and uh, Jesus has been trying to persuade uh, his audience throughout the Gospel of John that he has exactly that, that he is exactly that. I have come to bring life and to bring abundantly. I am the life, he has said. And, and he, va- he, he backs these claims up impressively with the resurrection itself as he moves through death back into life. So I, I, I want to use uh, this fourfold mechanical model that I just described to you as a kind of an outline for Jesus's organic model, partially to help us remember it, but also to show the contrast between an organic and a mechanical process of growth. So I'd like to begin as we look at John 15 with unconscious incompetence. There's some similarities between organic and mechanic at this phase of the process. And Jesus begins in verse one of chapter 15. I am the true vine. And, and immediately, you know, this raises a question. What, what do you mean, true vine? You know, there's a kind of a contrast. So someone says, this lasagna is good. You know, you're like, well, wait, wait a minute, honey. Uh, what about all the other lasagna that I made for you the last 30 years? There's a contrast. And it makes you think, is there some other vine, Jesus? And, and you know, I've been living my life for 45 years. I've been learning and growing. I've developed competencies. I feel pretty good about who I am generally. And now someone says, you know what? There's true vine. There's true life. And Jesus does this all the way through the Gospels. The woman at the well hears him say, there's living water. You know, or the people who he feeds the multiplying the loaves. He says, there's true bread from heaven. It's kind of like when you get glasses for the first time. You thought you could see, but all of a sudden now, wow. Fuzzy is the new clear, you know, and you can see you can actually see and you thought you had an experience of vision before you put the glasses on. But now you see a whole nother reality. 
And the, the, the reality that Jesus is describing is so absolutely different. None of us have ever really experienced it in its fullness before. So he's constantly got to use these analogies because it's like bread. It's like water. You know, it's like a vine. But it's more than that. There's a greater reality beyond all of this. That's what he's saying when he says, I am the true vine. You're not competent yet. You're not even conscious that you're not competent yet. There's so much more. What comes to my mind from the Gospel of John is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, which meant in some ways in, for Nicodemus, he was actually a scholar, an academic, a theologian, uh, technically highly trained and skilled. And yet he'll come to Jesus in the night and say, Rabbi, uh, which is a strange thing to call the son of a carpenter when you are Nicodemus with all that you've got in your training. Rabbi, we know that you come from God. And what Jesus has to say to him is, Nicodemus, how can you be a teacher of Israel when you know about as much of the direction of God in your life as we know about the direction of wind? What you need to do is go back and become born again or born from above, which is a remarkable image. But notice it's organic image. You need a process of life, spiritual life that works through the fiber of your being. You're, con- you're unconsciously incompetent. You don't know what you don't know. He raises a question for Nicodemus just as he raises for these disciples when he says, I am the true vine. That's the first phase. And the first point is this. You are made for true growth. You and I are made for true growth. The second phase is conscious incompetence. Conscious incompetence, remember, is when you become aware that you're not performing the way you would like to or think that you uh, perform. So for the mechanical model, this usually involves an experience of failure. Okay, I play golf with you and I see the contrast and I realize I don't really play golf. Um, But failure isn't the key component for an organic process. Jesus talks about something else. In verse two, the key component in the organic process is called pruning. There's a vine grower in the vineyard, and he has a pruning knife in your life. In verse 2, he removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Now, let's talk about pruning for a second. Oftentimes, we think of pruning as some kind of punitive process that God works in our lives. See, you did that. I'm going to punish you. No, Jesus is saying pruning is what the Father does to fruitful lives. See, why, why does he prune? Well, you know, I don't know that much about viticulture, but I understand that uh, you you have to uh, prune a vine or it will produce too many clusters and the grapes will be too small and not have the right uh, flavor. The the word for branch here is tendril. So there are two kinds of uh, things that the father is cutting off. It's dead wood, bears no fruit, but also the tendrils that are not fruit bearing vines. They're suckers on the branch. My mom is a landscape architect. Which means, among other things, she's got an incredible Rolodex of people who work in the, in the yard. And my favorite uh, person among these is called Mr. Nido. And Mr. Nido is, I guess, an arborist, but he's a pruner. And uh, Mr. Nido, he must be paid by the hour because he'll just stand there and look at the tree. Now, he's, he, you know, my mom has given him some instructions. He's asked her questions about what relation do you want for this tree between the, the tree and the path, the, the tree and the window, the roof line, and so forth. But then he's just going to stand there and he looks at the tree 
And what Mr. Nido is doing is he's looking through time. See, he's looking into the future. When you and I prune a bush, uh, unless you know, I mean, you maybe know more than I do about pruning. I tend to prune it for the way I want it to look today. A good pruner looks into the future because he knows how it needs to grow. See, pruning cuts things off that sap energy and life away from the direction of growth. A pruner really wants beauty, productivity, fruitfulness in your life. How does it happen? Jesus tells us here, and you have to catch this little pun that he's made. Uh, In verse 3, he says, oh, you've already been cleansed. Check out the footnote there. That's the same Greek word for pruned. When it's in a, the context is in the um, vineyard, it's, it's translated rightly prune. When the context is in like washing feet, feet, like in chapter 13, uh, Jesus uses the same word. You've already been cleansed. Every one of you except for one, and that's Judas who left the room, have been cleansed. And Jesus wants to reassure his disciples. He's saying, Don't, I'm not talking about you falling off the vine someday. He's saying, you've already been pruned. Okay? But how are you pruned? By the word. That's the instrument. It's, it's, it's the word of God in Jesus Christ who does the pruning in our lives. That instrument that's sharper than a two-edged sword. He speaks good news into your life. Here's how this worked for me. When I was in college, uh, I was, it won't surprise you to find out, a really rough kind of Christian. And as I still am today. And um, I had just started a dating relationship. It was kind of unusual for me that anybody would want to date me. Obviously, this uh, young woman didn't know me very well. And she was giving me her time. And I was all filled with romantic fever. And I thought, this is great. You know, really excited about this relationship. Want to express all kinds of physical intimacy. So I want to know, okay, so how far do you go? You know, what, what, you know give me the kind of the limits of this deal. And don't, you know, we all asked this question at one point. Let's be honest. And so I thought I knew the answer. So I went to my, I was in a small group, which was a new thing for me. And I had a small group leader um, I came to him kind of like a scribe comes to Jesus and I say master trying to stump him the Bible doesn't say anywhere that premarital sex is wrong and I thought I had him there and he goes well George um, do you have a Bible I said no can I use yours well let's look at uh, <laughs> let's look at first Thessalonians 4 and he you know flips over because I couldn't find it to save my life and he says let's read verse 3 and there Paul says, this is the will of God that you abstain from, in his translation, fornication. And he goes, George, do you know what fornication is? And I say, no, but I know I don't do it. You know, it sounds it's nasty. Uh, and he goes, well, fornication just means sex outside of marriage. That's all it means. And, 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 and God has a better plan for you. And I felt right there, the pruning shears clip. The word of God said, you know what, George? Got something better for you. I'm going to just take that away. Like so many things. Bitterness, going to take it away. Uh, uh, materialism and greed, going to take it away. Uh, uh, oppression, going to take it away. Just going to cut these things off because they're not going to be helpful to you. They're not going to bring joy into your life. And Jesus said, I give you these instructions so that my joy may be in you. He wants you to live a joyful life just the same way he did. And so he prunes us. It's not a comfortable process. I don't know if you noticed, you know, we read Isaiah 2 and all the Old Testament all the time. We got spears being turned into pruning hooks and pruning hooks being turned into spears. Why? Just simple modification. You just put a little bend in it and you got a pruning hook. But if you're on the business end of that thing, I'm not sure you can tell the difference. Right. You're just getting cut. It hurts uh, to be pruned. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? You got to be willing to go through that pain. 
In John chapter 5, Jesus approaches a man who has been sick for 38 years. And he has laid at the pools of Bethzatha, where uh, he tells the story. He says, Jesus, we think that uh, these waters are magical. And uh, when there's a stirring of the waters, the first one who gets in gets healed. And I've got nobody to carry me. I'm always beat by somebody else. He's got this kind of sob story. And Jesus looks at him and he says, one question for you. Do you want to get well? And the guy's got to think it over. 38 years. I've gotten awfully comfortable in this way of living. I just thought it was the way I was. Yeah, and we are too. I just thought it was my marriage. I just thought it was my manager. I, I just thought it was this or that situation. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Because if you do, I can do it. I can speak life into your life. But there's going to be a pruning hook involved. And it may be uncomfortable. That's conscious incompetence. I mean, this man knew he was incompetent. He was aware of that. But the question for him was, would he suffer the pruning? And the second point is that true growth requires pruning. It requires pruning in your life. So let's move to the third phase, a conscious competence. And here's where the organic and the mechanical really diverge. And it's important to catch the fork here. Because what, what makes conscious competence work when you're acquiring a skill and a mechanical model is some kind of a standard of performance. You're, you're given this, the, the manual, the instructions, the to-dos. You know, give me the, the six easy steps, right? That's what I need. That's how you, you develop the skill in a mechanical model. In the organic model, you recognize there is only one who is competent. There is only one who is a true source of life, and that is Jesus himself. I am the true vine. We talked about the truth of the vine, the contrast, but now what's the vine? Why use that image? Well, it wasn't at all a new image in the biblical history. These disciples would have immediately associated that not just with agriculture, but with what God wanted to do through Israel in the world. You see, because they knew Israel was the vine, always in the Bible. It's about Israel. And any time this image, this metaphor, the vine, is used in the, both the Old Testament and even in the parables of Jesus, it has to do with two things. God as the source of life and human beings who utterly fail and do not bear the fruit that they're meant to bear. Life from God. It's the story of the Exodus. God taking the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. And the psalmist says, Verse 8 of Psalm 80, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Gives the Ten Commandments, kind of a standard of performance if approached in a certain way. And uh, they fail. Over the 400-year history, Israelite does not, uh, Israel does not bear the fruit that God intends them to bear. And so Isaiah uh, would have to give the prophetic word from the Lord, pronouncing uh, Judgment for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It just says it right there. The vineyard is the house of Israel and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. But he expected justice, but saw bloodshed. He expected righteousness, but heard a cry. He he didn't bear the fruit. You were supposed to bring forth joy for the nations. And yet you didn't. Failure. But there's a promise. And the promise... um, is that when you come back from exile, there will be a new vine. Isaiah 27, 6 says, In the days to come, Jacob shall take root, 
Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Someday, this time when I rescue you from the nations and bring you back, there will be a true vine who will bring fruit of joy to the whole world. And now Jesus says, you're looking at him. I am the true vine. This is kind of a culmination of all the I am statements that he's given in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the, the, the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread. I'm, and now I am everything that Israel was supposed to be, the true vine to bring fruit to the world. I tell you what, when I thought about this text this week, all I could think about were all the failures and disappointments in my life. The ways in which I'm not the husband that I should be. I, I, I'm not the uh, father that I want to be. I'm not the pastor that I want to be for you all. And then I thought about Jesus. What he's saying here is everything that God wanted from Israel, I have stepped into. I have become the failure of in Israel so that I might become the success of the world. I am competence for all people. I am the true vine that brings through whom joy and growth and fruit comes into the whole world. So he's saying, I don't, I don't care about your failure. What I, what I promise to do is to bear my fruit on your branch. This is the last word on human history. It's the last word on your life. Whatever you're struggling with right now, I bet there's an area of your life you think, you know what, if I could only grow through this, I could do it. I could do the job that I've got set before me. I could be the person that I need to be in this situation. And Jesus is saying, that's my fruit, and I intend to bear it on your branch. Count on me for it. That's conscious competence. Jesus is conscious of his ability to be competent in your life. And this is the third principle that Jesus promises his fruit in your life. See, you're made for true growth. True growth requires pruning, but Jesus promises his fruit in your life. Let's move to the final stage, the fourth, that that's unconscious competence. In the mechanical model, you know, the, the, the hope is that you eventually forget the rules and, and just kind of keep practicing it. And you do it without thinking about it. But in the organic model, you don't pay attention to the rules. Your focus is on relationship. And your call is to a greater depth of relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, abide. You know, that's the one imperative here. That's the one invitation. You just abide with me. Stay connected. What, what does abide mean? We've got to be careful because oftentimes we think abide by the rules. That is not at all what Jesus is saying here. And he's got another play on words here. There's another pun. There's a verb and a noun. And the verb is meno. And it's translated variously throughout the Upper Room Discourse. Remain, dwell, abide, or last. That's meno, M-E-N-O. But there's also a noun, and that's uh, mone. These two words are kiss and cousins. They come from the same source. They're cognates. And the noun is translated dwelling place, mansions, room, or home. See the relationship between these two words? When Jesus says abide, he's saying make an abode. When he's saying remain, he's saying stay in my space. He's saying, live with me. There's got to be space in your life for me. Not just any space. It's the central space. It's the space you call home. Did you notice last week when Renee was reading the text with us that there were two Judases in the room? Did you catch that? In chapter 14, he says, uh, uh, Judas asks a question, not Iscariot. 
think, whoa, that's an unfortunate coincidence. I mean, Jesus had two of his 12 disciples that were named Judas, this poor guy sitting in the room. And for the rest of his life, his last name is going to be not Iscariot. I'll tell you what, you know, the difference between these two men, these named Judas, it has nothing to do with potential. It has nothing to do with training, nothing to do with knowledge, nothing to do with their own virtue. It has everything to do with who stays in the room and who leaves the room. Because one Judas will leave the room and the other will abide and remain with Jesus. I I think John probably uh, uses the name Judas intentionally here because John is the last of the gospel writers. He survives all the apostles and he knows very well that long ago people stopped calling Judas Judas. That's not Iscariot. And he called him Thaddeus. Thaddeus means, uh, speaks of the heart of God. Isn't that interesting? This man who stayed in the room begins to represent the heart of God. And, and John, I think, probably knows by the time he writes this gospel that in, among his audience are circulating rumors that Thaddeus went on to live a very fruitful life to do miracles. He went to northern Mesopotamia, uh, legend has it, to uh, convert the king of Edessa and, and to bring the good news to that whole nation and start a very ancient uh, church there. Imagine what a relationship can do to change a life. I mean, I mean if, if you've seen The Blind Side, this movie that comes up uh, for consideration tonight in the Academy Awards, you know the power of a, a Christian family that reaches out to a young man raised on the wrong side of the tracks in Nashville, Tennessee. And because they believe in him, he thrives. He bears fruit in his life athletically, academically. And, uh, you know, that in the 2009 uh, first round draft, he was chosen by the Baltimore Ravens. A true story. Incredible story. But imagine if that home, if those people in your life were not just human beings, but was God himself saying, I am for you. You can do it. We can do this together. Let's let's remain in this space. That's why the Gospel of John is written by a man who prefers to refer to himself as the beloved disciple. Not saying he's not bragging. He's just saying, I, I know my identity more than by my name. By the love that I find in Jesus Christ. And his disciple, by the way, John will go on, is named Polycarp. A man who is probably renamed to reflect the reality of his life. Much fruit is what Polycarp means. So the fourth and final point is you will grow as you make space at the center of your life for relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to abide with him. It's an organic process, growth. I want to close with a a writing from a man by the name of J.B. Phillips who translated the New Testament and um, uh, one of the, his translations is bound in a volume called Letters to Young Churches, published in 1947. He describes this organic process of growth in the early church. J.B. Phillips writes, The great difference between present-day Christianity and that of which we read in these letters is that to us, it is primarily a performance. To them, it was a real experience. We are apt to reduce the Christian religion to a code or at best a rule of heart and life. To these people, it is quite plainly the invasion of their lives by a new quality of life altogether. They do not hesitate to describe this as Christ living in them. Mere moral reformation will hardly explain the transformation and the exuberant vitality of these people's lives. Even if we could prove a motive for such reformation, and certainly the world around offered little encouragement to the early Christian. 
We are practically driven to accept their own explanation, which is that their little human lives had through Christ been linked up with the very life of God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't pray that our lives be linked up with yours because we know they already have. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we are in him and he is in us. We thank you for the assurance that while we may fail, you never do. That you have come to bring true competence to every promise you gave Israel and to bring that competence into our lives as well. Help us to abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.